how much easier might vaccines be if instead of getting a shot in your arm, you could apply a pain-free patch to your skin on your own? Such a patch would be covered in tiny microneedles created with 3D printing. A syringe needle with all the liquid dumped in a bolus way into the muscle is absolutely reproducible. Microneedles have not become a go-to technology because it's not reproducible. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, the future of microneedles and other medical devices made with 3D printing. I'm Fenella Saunders. There are only a very small number of scientists who have been elected to all three branches of the U.S. National Academies, the National Academy of Sciences, of Medicine, and of Engineering. One of those rare scientists is Joseph D. Simone, an author on hundreds of scientific papers and named on hundreds of patents. D. Simone's current research focuses on developing 3D printing approaches to address complex problems. Problems such as distributing vaccines worldwide when there isn't a way to store vaccines in places without refrigerators. So I started our interview by asking what got him interested in connecting 3D printing to medical devices in the first place. Here's our interview, which has been edited for length and clarity. My connection with medicine is the second half of my career in that as a polymer scientist trained at Virginia Tech and Ursinus College before that as a BS chemist, up in the Philadelphia area, I fell in love with polymers and Virginia Tech doesn't have a medical school. There's no NIH funding sort of powerhouse there. And, and so when I got to Chapel Hill, I was bringing the polymer vernacular and, and expertise. And I forget, I got contacted by a colleague in the medical school who was interested in gene therapy and delivering nucleic acids. And I didn't know anything about that area and it was a lovely, polymer, I thought, you know, and, and I started looking at the literature about how people were doing this and they were basically delivering them with cousins to paint. So here is a, you know, the most beautiful molecule I've ever seen. It's being delivered with paint. I thought there was such a, a gap in the intellectual significance of that. And so we started getting into top-down manufacturing and using the lithographic tools out of the computer industry because the length scales of Moore's law at that point were starting to approach the length scales of viruses and nanoparticle, you know, lipid part assemblies, tens of nanometers. So we started using the two-dimensional molding technologies that were enabled by lithography to make precision particles for medicine, making things with pattern light in two dimensions. So I began thinking more and more about making things with pattern light in three dimensions, which is the foundation of 3D printing. And that brings together software, hardware, material science, business models, partnerships, you know, it's just amazing set of things that's the ultimate in convergence. And now when we look at the future of our printer, we're now making printers. We built a printer here at Stanford with 30 micron size pixels and a new one with 1.5 micron pixels. Remember, red blood cells about eight microns in diameter, so really small things. And so now we're making microneedles for delivery of vaccines transdermally. Interestingly, we have 100 to 1,000 times more migratory immune cells in the dermis of our skin than we do in our muscle. And so when you deliver the same vaccine in the same amount, 
in the same type, and you deliver it into the dermis through pain-free microneedles, we see a 50-fold increase in antibody response in the preclinical animal models, simply because that's where the target immune cells are. And we have a much more balanced immunological response, a much more balanced Th1, Th2 response. So to me, this is the ultimate in convergence because you, you know, we're deep in immunology, we're deep in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, we're deep in material science, we're deep in 3D printing, we're deep in understanding policy and working with the Gates Foundation. And now we're working with Welcome Leap, which is funded by Gates and the Burroughs Welcome Foundation for moving to the RNA vaccines. And so I'm, you know, I'm excited about you know, the opportunities for digitally printed structures. And we're iterating designs that you can't make any other way to make 3D printing microarray patches as reliable as a needle and syringe into the muscle. Obviously, microneedle research has been going on for some time. Microneedles were developed in the 1970s. It's not obviously the pervasive method yet for vaccination. So it's hard to imagine it's 50 years, but it is. What is the development here? So microneedles 1.0, they were fabricated using the tools of the microelectronics industry in the beginning, etched in silicon and metal. And by nature, everything in a, on a wafer is uniform across the entire wafer. It's very difficult within microns to put different structures, even different heights. They're all the same and they're etched in silicon. So you have a bed of nails effect, right? They're all the same height and there's a lot of force that will require to insert it. Very limited materials, but they proved an important point. Microneedles 2.0 was making a mold of the microneedles etched in silicon and now molding replicas of those out of different materials. Opened up the material space, but you still had the shape limitations. And now you had the fidelity of replication issues. You, know, you can make a much sharper etching silicon than you could do molding out of an elastomer. And you also tied the mechanical properties of the needle to the excipients that you're molding because the needle is what gets delivered into the skin. Now with the advent of high resolution 3D printing, I call that microneedles 3.0. They're directly fabricated out of a wide range of materials, out of designs that are unmoldable. You know, we are now making microneedles that are latticed. You know, no one's ever seen us before, or maybe even simply making needles of different heights to get access to different layers of the skin to avoid the bed of nails effect. Having at a patch level, needles that stretch the skin so that you have reproducible delivery. Because what the big problem why, and you said it, you know, microneedles have not become a go-to technology because it's not reproducible. A syringe needle with all the liquid dumped in a bolus way into the muscle is absolutely reproducible. And it's gonna take a new needle at a needle level and a patch level design to make the patch reliable and reproducible. And I think that's what the ticket is what's held back the whole field. And on top of that, what you have is systems that could be self-administrated to avoid the 300,000 healthcare workers tied up in delivering you know, these systems. The potential for a dry state to mitigate the cold chain issues. And you're getting access to the cells that you really want. And it's 50 times better. 
you know, from an antibody re response. And so all of a sudden we're aligned with some really great tailwinds to help us move this forward. So we're excited about what that brings. I know this has been going on for a while, but it sounds like there's still more development to do there. Do you have a timeline for that? Well, we just got a grant accepted today internally here to allow us to start quantifying our effectiveness at interstitial fluid sampling. So we're doing two things now. We're not only delivering to the dermis. Here's the other great opportunity is, you know, we have five times more interstitial fluid in our bodies than we do blood. And there's a really great article published by somebody at Penn to the effect of the third forgotten circulation system, arterial, venous, and lymphatic. The lymphatic system is more amorphous. It's not as easily replicated in everybody. It's a different system. But, you know, a lot of the biomarkers that you track in blood are found also in interstitial fluid, just at different concentrations. So we think that interstitial fluid monitoring in the skin for both monitoring and delivery is a huge opportunity. And so we are now going down the path of quantifying these new designs for sampling in a pain-free way this interstitial fluid. So think about the progress on continuous glucose monitoring. You know, that took the world 40 years and $40 billion to, we're looking at one molecule. There's a dashboard of molecules you really need to look at for monitoring your health. You think about all the biomarkers that are yet to be discovered in a combination of biomarkers for things like mental health and other things. So we're really eager to get into the space for delivery and monitoring of interstitial fluid. In terms of some of the other medical devices you're working on, I think you also work with pediatrics. Yeah, we have a really interesting colleague here at Stanford, and she treats babies born with cleft palates, neonatal babies. And what I didn't appreciate with cleft palate surgery is that the baby's still growing. And uh, she's developed basically what I attribute to is almost like an Invisalign-like approach for remodeling the palate to get it to close naturally so that the surgery can be much more minor than a, a really aggressive surgery at the right, right in the beginning. And the problem is when you don't seal the palate, the babies can't eat properly. So she's developed a device that looks like a denture base to me. I, I love these analogies of seeing things that are very different, but drawing connections. And that's maybe back to the convergence and a liberal arts education about seeing connections that might be obscure. But to me, it looked like the base of our dentures that she was handcrafting and that she would have to change it every week to make it a little bit different each time to get it to guide, you know, to me, it looked like an Invisalign program. And so we're working with them now in using the same denture material that we've got approved with over a hundred thousand people wearing them, adults wearing them is to get into a digital intraoral scanning. And you know, look, you ever take an impression of a baby with a cleft palate? It, you know, it's awful but it should just be scanned. And, you know, and so getting into that space and trying to digitize that workflow, and she's an artisan, her name's Hiran Chu, and it's hard to even get a residency with her because it's a technically challenging craft that she has, and it's hard to train people. But to me, if you digitize it and you go with intraoral scanning and you just print it, you know, it can simplify the process. And imagine that, you know, through AI and machine learning is because she's got data on over 70 babies where we have the beginning and the end and all these models, we scan all that. 
and looked for trajectories so that we could see the begin state, the end state, and print out, you know, 40 of these devices that could take a baby along a much more uniform trajectory to get to an efficient closure. And those are the things we're working on. So you're working on that right now? That's not something that's in production yet? or We've got a lot of work to do. We're, we've got to get IRB approvals. And what's remarkable is the handcrafted object, I'm way less confident in than the 3D printed one, but, right. it's not a, but it's not established. And so we got a lot of work in front of us. It's a similar to the microneedles in that respect of, you know, you kind of have the, have the data to back it up, even if you think it's going to be an improvement. Yeah, it's a lot of work to get into the clinic. Sure. And, and rightly so, you know, their safety is important. And we've got to dot our I's, cross our T's and be massively confident and data to provide that. And, you know, that's a craft and learning that too for people. And that's part of the training ground we provide. Do you see any, I don't know what the right word is, maybe biases there against this kind of technology when you're looking at replacing established technologies? Bias, yes. <laughs> Everyone hates change. <laughs> Comfort levels are high. Entren you know, entrenched interests and how we do things. And it's, you know, that's part of the battle, you know, and it, you know, it takes a lot of fortitude and dollars and experience. You know, this is like an apprenticeship and it takes a lot to bring stuff forward. And, you know, you wonder how anything gets done and you could, you could lose <laughs> a lot of, you know, spirit in this process, but you know, it's the, the end game is really impactful. And we have a lot of people here that want to help. Mm -hmm. And that's the amazing thing is you've got, you know, you got IRBs and others and, and people that are just want to make a difference. You know, so when you're in an environment where innovation and opportunities for making a difference to improve people's lives is paramount. It's, it's inspiring to be in that kind of environment. And it's fun, it's fun to do that. So what do you think is different about this idea of convergent science over other approaches that have been implemented in the past towards cross-disciplinary work or other terms that kind of get at this, but- For me, one way to sum it up is convergent science is, you know, what's the difference between a common language and being multilingual? You know, there used to be that metaphor of an I-shaped person and a T-shaped person. I-shaped person be really deep in an area, but not ability to collaborate. The T-shaped person is really deep in an area, but could collaborate. You get that image. Convergence is more about being uh, comb-shaped or pie-shaped where you got to be deep in multiple areas. And, you know, a T-shaped person is often dumbing things down into a common language to collaborate. And going deep in multiple areas is the domain of being multilingual. And that's a higher calling. And that's what's really, if you're really going to be successful in this convergence area, you've got to be, you know, if you're going to do a vaccines, you've got to be deep in material science and immunology and pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. There's no shying away from it. You got to own it at, at the deepest levels. I think that the reason people specialize is because it's so difficult to become an expert in different areas. Well, that's a problem. I mean, you look at the average age for an R01 grant for a new investigator today, I think it's 44. Sand Hill Road, I think it's 22. You know, that's a problem. I mean, I, you know, I was in my prime in my 20s, you know, and, and it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a really interesting statement and something we've got to pay attention to because vision without resources is a hallucination. And we've got to find more and more mechanisms to power young faculty and students and postdocs. And, you know, we have this 
we have, we have this community of postdocs that are stranded in poor paying jobs and we got to break through that. And, you know, I, I had a good fortune not having to have to do a postdoc. I landed my faculty position when I was 25. That you know, seems a lot less likely these days. <laughs> it is, but Carolina took a risk on me. Uh-huh. Right? And all I had to do was teach organic chemistry and polymer chemistry. And they gave me, you know, $500,000 and get going. And <laughs> that, it was fun. And I had great colleagues and great mentorship. And I, I think that's a better model and let more people maybe succeed and fail and, but just get more people into the system. I, I don't like this, this stagnation that's happening in the field, especially in life sciences. I have to think you've got some ideas there about well, change. You know, I, I think you follow the money, right? It's right. always, and I, you know, I think it's getting, taking more risk on people earlier in their careers, but you know, it feels like an endless battle of trying how to do that systemically. And we're launching a new center for STEM mentorship to give people more capabilities on their own, but also with faculty groups and, and understanding that. So it's, it's a real problem. I don't, I don't actually have a good answer. <laughs> I'm shocked. I would think you would have I wish it I did. Right <laughs> that was Joseph Simone speaking with me about his research on 3D printing medical devices. For a different excerpt of our interview, Read my Q&A with Simone in the July-August 2022 special issue of American Scientist or online at www.americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us.